This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody, it's Lon Seibin, and it's time once again for your weekly wrap-up. I am back from CES, so we'll get back into our normal schedule And on this wrap-up, we're going to be looking at my 2018 year in review. We'll take a look at the videos that performed the best here on the channel. Uh, We'll look at some news items, including Sony TVs and Kodi. Uh, We'll discuss how to cover CES, uh, whether or not I should go hands-free on my microphone. It's a topic that comes up every year. We'll talk a little bit more about it how to get credentialed to cover CES, and we'll also talk about some new takes on the old classic game Doom in my Pick of the Week section. Lots to talk about, so let's get to it. I want to begin by thanking our newest supporters here on the channel. We've got a bunch that came in since our last wrap-up. They include Jacob Wenzel, Daniel Ferguson, Chris Anderson, and Bob Ferran, who all gave via my donor box page and we also have some new Patreon members as well, including Jack Lasserjean, Daniel, Maverick FJR, and Peter Arnett, who made an upgrade to his Patreon contribution. I want to thank everyone for their support of the channel and everyone who watches on a regular basis, too, because all of those things equal channel growth. And this week's wrap-up is being brought to you once again by PDF Element. They had a big sale on their software, which allows you to edit PDFs and do a whole bunch more uh, right before the holidays. They're continuing that sale into 2019, uh, up to 50% off on certain versions of PDF Element. And they wanted me to demo another feature of their software, which is Form Data Collection. Uh, So right now we're getting into tax season here in the United States. And if you are responsible for collecting documents from people, you've probably been collecting some of these W-9 forms, for example. And uh, one of the things you might want to do is grab the data off of those forms and put them into a spreadsheet automatically. And PDF Element can help you do just that. Let's take a look and see how this feature works. Now, there are two ways to capture data, one being from forms that have been filled out digitally and another from scanned forms. Uh, So we'll start off with the digital option here. You can see I've got this W-9 form from my uh, LLC here all filled out, and I could add different things to this form if I wanted to. And if I go over here to the form option and go to tasks, I can go to data extraction. And what this will do is uh, load my PDF into a dialog box here. And if I got another one of these things in from another uh, vendor of mine, I can just add that additional PDF file to the mix. So in this case, we have Jake's Building LLC. And what we're going to do is just extract data from the PDF form fields. I'm going to click Start here. And we're just going to drop this file into my downloads folder real quick. And what it's going to do is create a CSV file, basically an Excel file that I can go in now and get this data in tabular format. So you can see here we've got uh, all the different form options. I'd have to rename these, of course, here at the top, but it basically lines up everything. So, for example, on uh, the lon.tv form, I had checked off that I was a a single-member LLC, which was position one here on the form. Uh, But Jake's building was an S corporation, so he checked off the third option there. So you can see that uh, it put a three here under Jake's building. So you could really just go ahead and maybe uh, change these top uh, statements here with the actual fields that they are. 
but you can see it very effectively grabbed all of the data here and broke it out uh, into different sections, including the address, and you can do a little bit more work on this after the fact. It did split up the tax ID numbers here, but this is very easy to combine uh, inside Excel once you get all the data in there. So it's a lot faster than typing it in, just kind of reformat some of the data. And it will also work with documents that were scanned in. You can build out a little template and tell it where all the field elements are. It will look in those portions of the document, even as a batch, find the data, OCR it, and then drop it into a spreadsheet. So it might be a fun way to speed up your process, especially when you're working with form data. And again, that is PDF element that you can find linked here on screen. So let's take a look now at the week in review. We didn't have anything on the extras channel this week due to CES, but I will be shooting some extras stuff a little bit later today. Uh, but on the main channel, we got in three reviews before I hopped on the plane to Vegas. So we had a single drive Synology NAS review, the DS-119J. Uh, we also looked at a SD card from Sony that is designed to be more rugged, but it's also a UHS-2 card, so it's a little faster than the typical SD card that might be out there. And I talked about why that new technology might be useful, even if your cameras don't yet support that function. And we looked at the Lenovo Y7000P gaming laptop, which is a uh, mostly a, a, a retail-only uh, laptop that you might be able to find on sale at many retailers. So that one will be out there for a while. Didn't get a lot of traffic initially, but I think as this uh, laptop makes its way out into the channel, we'll probably get more traffic on it. And we did four videos from CES 2019 this week, three dispatches and an interview with our sponsor, Silicon Dust, the makers of the HD Home Run. We do that interview every year to find out where the product is going. A lot of you have been waiting for their six-tuner cable device. We talked a lot about that uh, in the interview, so you can check that out down below in the master playlist. Now it's time for a couple of things that are on my mind, and this is week 98 of me doing this as a full-time occupation. And of course, we were at CES last week, and you can see my uh, full playlist down below in the video description or at this link in case you missed anything. And this year's CES coverage was the most watched ever here on my channel, which was very gratifying. I was not sure if I was going to go this year or not. I kind of made a last-minute decision to go. Uh, I'm very glad that I did. I got a lot of great networking in, and again, the viewership on this one has been really, really good. In fact, the first dispatch got picked up by the YouTube algorithm, so we had at the time I'm recording this, about 50,000 views of that first dispatch and a lot of good viewer retention. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, this is a lot of work and expense, uh, so it's great to see people enjoyed uh, my coverage of it. And I didn't have a lot of time this year because I was only there for uh, Monday and Tuesday, essentially. Uh, the show started on Tuesday, so I was there for all the pre-show stuff on Monday, and then I had to get back because they changed my flights coming back to Connecticut. All, all of the nonstops went away this year for some reason, so I used to be able to squeeze out another day, uh, but I was unable to get that day this year, so we did produce quite a bit of content, actually, in a short period of time uh, because it's all about being efficient. And efficiency was really the name of the game this year. Uh, we didn't have as much B-roll as I would have liked to have had, just given that we were trying to get as much in as possible. Uh, so one of the things that I look for at CES are the events where they've got a lot of companies in one room. And there were two events this year that we attended. Uh, first was on Monday night at Pepcom. That was the first dispatch 
Uh, that event is about three and a half hours, and we were able to get about 25 minutes of content out of it. And unfortunately, I could not get to the end of the room before the event ended. Uh, part of the issue was that I was running into a lot of people that I knew, both vendors and other fellow journalists. I was uh, having a good time catching up with everybody, so we just didn't get quite through the entire event, but we did get most of it in there. Uh, there was another similar event called Showstoppers on Tuesday night. Uh, so we spent the entire day on Tuesday running around the convention floor, finding some of the things for that dispatch, and then we uh, pivoted over to Showstoppers that evening, which became dispatch number three. Uh, Showstoppers was a smaller event, but they still had about 100 companies in one room. And anytime that opportunity presents itself, we are there because you can really get a lot done in a very short period of time. One of the challenges with Las Vegas during CES is that it's very difficult to get around. Even though geographically the event is contained in one area, uh, it's a lot of ground to cover on foot. And because there are so many people there, it's hard to get transported from one place to the other. So we Try to get in as much as we can. And that's also why you have to kind of choose where you're going to cover. And for me, I decided that uh, covering the startups and some of the things that people aren't really out there looking for from the major media outlets is probably the best place to go. And given the viewership, it looks like a lot of people agreed with that decision. So we'll continue looking for all those hidden gems there. It just takes longer to find them because you really have to hunt them out. They don't have the PR resources to attract press. You have to find them. Uh, but I think we did have a good time with that. And again, I appreciate everybody tuning in. But here's the uh, big thing with CES this year. I didn't see anything that blew me away. And uh, most of the tech press didn't either because they named a hamburger the product of the show. This was Digital Trends. Uh, but a number of other outlets kind of also gave the nod to the Impossible Burger 2.0. And this is not a piece of electronics. This is a burger uh, made from plants. But they engineered some of the components of meat uh, specifically hamburger meat that uh, make it taste the way it does without actually involving a cow to produce it. And apparently that was what attracted everybody this year at the show. And this is a, a good example, I think, of where the consumer electronics industry is at the moment. I think we've hit a maturity point with uh, just about everything that we cover here on the channel. So a lot of incremental things were there, but there wasn't any new groundbreaking technology that totally blew people away uh, to the point where the hamburger here apparently did. And I think that's kind of where we're going to be at for the next year. There's just nothing that's going to be all that different than what we had the year before. It's just going to be slightly better than the year before. So I think just be prepared for that. I did not get a chance to taste the hamburger here. I'm eager to try one now because everybody's talking about it, but that was uh, pretty much it for the show. So a good CES, a uh, good show in the sense that we had a lot of viewership from it, which I am grateful for. And it was fun just to catch up with everybody. But again, I'm not seeing anything groundbreaking coming out this year. But again, we'll keep looking for it, and hopefully there will be some new stuff to cover. Now I want to take a look back at the year in review and see how we did in 2018. So we'll begin with some basic stats here. Uh, on this channel, I uploaded 203 videos. Uh, that number, of course, is higher if you count in the Extras channel and the Snippets channel, but this is just for the main channel here, 203. Uh, not too bad there. Uh, we had about 14.9 million views on all of the content on my channel this year, which is great. Uh, that's about a 7.2% increase in views over the prior year, where we got 13 0.9 million. It's about a million more than last year. That's pretty good, I think. Uh, and the big story here, though, is the watch time. Uh, we had over 1 million watch hours 
Uh, how anyone can tolerate me for a million hours is beyond me, but people have apparently. Uh, and that was a pretty significant uptick from last year uh, where we had 864,000 watch hours. So 21.8% increase in the amount of time that people stay tuned to the channel. And I was very grateful to see that. Uh, this could also be the YouTube algorithm getting better at putting my content in front of people that are interested in what I'm talking about. Again, about 80% or so of my traffic comes from non-subscribers. Uh, so whatever the algorithm is doing uh, is apparently working for me. Uh, so it's pretty neat to see how this stuff works out. So we'll see what next year looks like. But this was my most watched year ever insofar as viewer retention is concerned. And this is all YouTube cares about now. Views are important. But really, the big story here is how long people watch for. And if you're able to retain people on the platform, you are rewarded with more watch time. And that is exactly what happened. And we added 45,611 new subscribers. It's a little bit more than last year, but I found that uh, over the course of this channel's development, the subscriber growth has been very steady from one year to the next, and that is continuing here. So a slight growth tick on subscribers, but uh, mostly at about the same rate as the prior year, and that's totally fine with me. As long as we keep growing, uh, I am happy with that. So let's take a look now at my top videos. I'm going to break this out into two sections. The first are the videos that were made in 2018. Uh, the top video by far was my Xbox versus NVIDIA Shield video. Uh, this was algorithms suggested to a lot of people, so that is why it was doing as well as it was. Uh, my Fire TV Stick 4K video also did very well. Uh, what I found with the Amazon products is that I've got to get them in and reviewed very quickly so that it gets picked up on the search algorithm stuff, and that uh, is exactly what happened here with the 4K Fire Stick. It's also a good product. It's better than the last round of... Uh, Fire TV devices that Amazon came up with. Uh, continuing with our TV box trend here, the Mi Box S also did very well this year as I think the number uh, three video of the year. Uh, number four was the Wise Campan, uh, which was something that is available again on Amazon for a very reasonable price. These are those really cheap uh, security cameras. And the number five video was the 8-BitDo USB wireless adapter. Uh, clearly, people are interested with potentially using their Sony PlayStation or Xbox One controllers with their Nintendo Switch, and that uh, device allows you to do just that. Now, these five videos were the top videos that I made in 2018, but my actual top five is a very different list because of how YouTube's algorithm works. Uh, so my number one video watched this year, as it's been just about every year prior, is my first HD home run video. This one continues to get a ton of traffic, and it was my most watched video by views of 2018, even though it was made over five years ago. In fact, everything in that video is largely obsolete, with the exception of the HD home run prime. Uh, but this video is a great way to introduce new viewers to the channel. So I'm always constantly changing the cards and the links and everything to direct people to the newest version of what I'm working on. And it looks like it's still uh, going strong here four or five years later, which is great. I'm so glad that uh, a little bit of effort made a number of years ago continues to uh, pay back some dividends here. That's one of the things that I love about YouTube because it is an on-demand platform. I don't have to keep producing content 24 hours a day to keep the lights on here in the house. Uh, you can make content, make good content that people want to see and do all the SEO properly, and it will live a very long time. Uh, number two was a gaming laptop review from 2017, about two years ago. 
Uh, Acer makes these Aspire 5 laptops in a number of different SKUs, and people keep looking for inexpensive gaming laptops and are stumbling across this video. Uh, so that one was watched in, in, um, as the second most watched video of the year. Uh, the third most watched video was one that really surprised me. This is my, my video about Chromebooks and how they work. I did this back in 2015. It did okay when it first got up, and then it kind of fizzled out for a while, and this year it just came roaring back. And I think it's because there's a lot of consumer interest and now maybe more consumer demand in Chromebooks, and people are looking for information about how they work, and this video seems to still be very relevant for people. And this came up on the top five uh, this year for the first time. And this is a good example of how a piece of content you made a number of years ago could still have value in unexpected ways. And this one certainly surprised me, and I was very glad to see that it's still out there. Uh, number four is a video that's also done very well over a long period of time, which is a review that I did of a TP-Link Powerline adapter. I don't even know if they sell this one anymore, but this continues to get a ton of views, and I'm guessing it's just being suggested in the algorithm when people are looking at some other stuff. Uh, it's not one of my best pieces, but it seems to be uh, filling a need for people, and that's why it continues to be found on the platform. So power line adapter there. Uh, and we also had a 2017 video make the list, which was my 4K TV box comparison. Uh, people do like comparison videos. The YouTube algorithm likes them quite a bit as well. And it looks like, for the most part, the videos that do the best here on the channel are the things involving cord cutting, TV boxes, and home theater, uh, which is stuff that I like to do, but I also have other interests. But apparently, uh, what everyone wants to see from me are those TV-based things. But don't worry, I'm going to continue to be a very diverse channel just because, for sanity's sake, I have to look at other stuff so I don't get too bored of one particular product category. Uh, but it was very informative to t take a look back at the year and see what uh, people are looking for from me. And this really is a way to help guide me in the future. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And the first item involves Sony Televisions and Kodi. Uh, there was some concern last week that Sony was actively blocking installations of Kodi on their smart televisions. Uh, Sony TVs run Android TV, so they have access to the Google Play Store, but they would not allow the installation of Kodi after a firmware update was made. Uh, it turns out it was a software bug in the Sony firmware that's going to be corrected. Uh, this tweet from the Kodi group uh, sets the record straight on that, but everybody was concerned that perhaps Sony was just going to actively block it altogether. It looks like there was a weird combination in Kodi's package ID that messed everything up, but Sony promised an update that will fix that issue. So if you're having some problems, uh, there should be a solution very shortly. Uh, another thing related to smart televisions looks really interesting to me, which involves iTunes and Samsung televisions. So as we all know, the only way to watch Apple content on a television is to buy an Apple TV. But of course, many of us are satisfied now with what our smart TVs can give, give us, essentially, for uh, apps and whatnot, and you could not watch your iTunes content on there. Uh, so Apple has partnered up with Samsung, of all, of all companies, their chief rival in other areas. And what's going to happen is you'll be able to get an iTunes app on Samsung televisions. And some other TVs from Vizio and LG will be getting AirPlay 2 functionality. So you can stream to your television uh, from your iPhone or iPad. This is something they did not allow before. Uh, but check out the list of supported LG TVs. It looks like only 2019 TVs are going to support that, 
uh, whereas on Samsung, they've got a little bit more support going back here to some current year models. Vizio goes back even further than that. But this is a great example of, uh, I think, the issues that we have with smart televisions. You buy these TVs, and then a year later, everything is just obsolete. And when new features roll out, only the new TVs get them, even though the TV you have is perfectly fine. And there is now a petition underway, especially with LG, uh, to get that AirPlay 2 compatibility with LG sets. And some folks with TCL TVs are upset also because they want their television to support AirPlay 2 as well. And of course, TCL TVs run with Roku. Uh, so we'll see where all of this goes. I don't expect LG to budge an inch on this. They have not been updating their old sets with new software features for some time now. Uh, this is no surprise. And it's bad for consumers. And what, a lot of people ask me often, like, why do people continue to buy TV boxes? This is why, because your TV is relevant sometimes for a year or two, and then all the apps stop, stop getting updated, and you need to go to a box in order to keep getting the functionality out of your television. And it looks like we're going to be seeing that with AirPlay 2 here. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers, and I thought I would answer some questions related to covering CES. Uh, so Papadum Geek wants to know, uh, how do you find it using a wireless microphone in an area that he assumes would have lots of interference? And of course, CES has a ton of interference because there's a lot of Bluetooth and Wi-Fi devices kicking around. Uh, so I thought what I would do is take out my camera that I usually shoot with at CES and show you exactly what uh, is on it and what's attached to it. So as far as microphones are concerned, I use the Sennheiser AVX system. In fact, I use this here in the studio as well. It consists of two parts, uh, the first being the receiver unit here. Uh, this connects directly to the XLR port on my camera, uh, but they also come with adapters to allow you to plug it into any camera that has a standard microphone jack as well. Uh, there's a little battery on here. Uh, what's neat about this is that when you turn the camera on, uh, the receiver will turn itself on and then shuts down when the phantom power gets cut to the microphone port. It's really handy like that. But what I really like about the AVX is that I've never had a problem with it. I've never had to choose frequencies like you have to do on other wireless systems. Uh, you just turn it on, you pair it up with the microphone, in this case the stick microphone, and it just works. And what it does is it operates on the uh, 1.9 gigahertz spectrum, I believe, uh, which is different, of course, than what Bluetooth and Wi-Fi typically operate under. So it's not as crowded a frequency range. And then the AVX picks a number of channels in that frequency range and automatically switches from one to the other. So if it doesn't counter interference, it's actually receiving on multiple frequencies simultaneously and then just shifts over to another one. So it's constantly uh, trying to keep you out of trouble. And I have never, ever, in any of the things that I've done, had an issue with this. It's just perfectly matched for what I do. I like to turn things on and make them work, uh, and that is what happened there. I also have some uh, body packs for lavalier microphones. In fact, I use the AVX here in the studio also just because it's so convenient. Uh, so that is what I use uh, for interviews and whatnot. Same receivers, just switch over to these uh, little uh, body packs that I wear for uh, doing my other types of things that call for a lavalier mic. So again, a really seamless system and something that works quite well. Uh, this camera I've had for almost five years now, uh, and what's neat about this one, is this is the Sony PXW70, uh, is that when I bought it, it was only 1080p, uh, but then they had a firmware update that brought it to 4K. In fact, Sony still sells this camera. It's unusual for cameras to last that long in the marketplace, but it's still available. It'll do 4K now at 
uh, 100 megabits per second. What's nice when you're out in the field shooting 4K is that if you're producing 1080p content, you can crop and zoom and make it look like two different camera shots. Uh, that's what we did for the Silicon Dust interview. Uh, this camera's been great. I love the video quality. I'm not crazy about the autofocus. A lot of you have pointed out that it was having a hard time finding focus every once in a while. Uh, it's the one thing Sony cameras don't do very well is autofocusing. And again, if we had a little more time, I would have taken more time to shoot more B-roll, but we were really trying to get as much crammed in in a very short period of time. Uh, but normally we would go out and get some B-roll to kind of cover up some of those uh, blurry shots that this camera generated. But on balance, it's a great camera. The stabilizer on it is remarkable. Uh, so everything you saw with the exception of the silicon dust interview was shot handheld, but it really stabilizes things to the point that sometimes people think you're using one of those uh, gyroscopic uh, Steadicam mounts and whatnot on there. And then the light on the top here is from, uh, I don't know who this is from, uh, Draycast. And this was something that was getting liquidated at B&H a couple of years ago. It's a very nice lamp. It's got a number of different uh, color temperature options here on the back that you can adjust with it. The battery lasts a pretty good long time. It is LED, of course. It doesn't add all that much weight to the package here, but you do have to really hold the camera with uh, two hands when you're shooting with it like this. And What's funny is I saw so many of these lights at the show on other cameras because everybody bought this when they were clearing them out. So everybody got in on that deal. So overall, that's it. I mean, this is all I use when I'm shooting out in the field is this camera uh, and the microphone here. I'll put a link down below to the videos I did on the AVX system because the other thing that I added to this mic uh, was their uh, cardioid microphone head. This is what filters out all of the other noise around me. Uh, and I'll talk about why I use this in a minute. But uh, when you're in these really noisy rooms, uh, this really isolates sound quite well. And that's why a lot of people uh, go to these things with a stick microphone versus something else. And then, of course, every year when I go to CES, I have people saying I should be using a hands-free mic versus the stick mic. And every year I have to talk about why I decide to go with that uh, stick microphone. So as you heard a minute ago, uh, the cardioid head on here really does a much better job of isolating the sound than a lavalier mic would. The lavalier would probably work, but you would hear a lot more noise and it might be harder to, to discern my voice coming out of it. Uh, so what's nice about having this mic is that I know it works and when I turn it on and start talking, uh, generally things are good. And then if I happen to run into somebody I want to interview, we don't have to reconfigure the camera to get uh, some other microphone into the mix. Now, one thing that I've been looking at, and some people have brought this to my attention, uh, is something called a countryman microphone, which are uh, used in similar situations where you've got very noisy environments and want isolated audio. Uh, I am researching to see if this microphone will be compatible uh, with my Sennheiser transmitters like this one. Uh, because I'd want to continue using the AVX system with it. It does look like it's compatible with some other Sennheiser transmitters. I'm not sure if it does though, work with the one that I have. Uh, so I wrote to them. I haven't heard back yet, but hope to. And I might experiment with one of these at one of those Pepcom shows that I go to in New York, because those are equally noisy. And I would like to have my hands a little bit more free, which would be nice. And then, of course, I could pair uh, this microphone up with my other Sennheiser receiver. So if we did want to have a quick interview, I could just stick the microphone in somebody's face and have an interview with them uh, on the fly there. So I'm going to look into this and see. I don't know how the sound compared to uh, the much larger pickup that this mic has. So I'd love to hear any feedback from all of you as to whether or not this is a good direction to take. Uh, the microphone that I'm looking at here, I believe this is their E6 
uh, costs about $330, give or take, which is not bad uh, and, and something I'd be willing to spend if it would make uh, the coverage look a little bit better. But if you go and look at what some other channels are doing at CES, uh, many folks are using a handheld mic similar to this one, given the noise levels that they encounter. I did see that Linus Tech Tips did not have a mic either on his body or in his hand, uh, but he also had somebody with a boom mic in addition to his camera person uh, doing stuff. So maybe as the channel grows and we can bring more staff to Vegas, we'll pursue some of this stuff. It is expensive to cover the show, which is why we're so grateful to have a sponsor for it, uh, because you've got to pay the Vegas hotel rates during CES, and they escalate very quickly. So the uh, first night there, the night before CES, was about 100 and something dollars, and then it went up to $400 the first day of the show. That was one night, uh, just to give you an example of what it costs to get there, not counting all the food and all the other escalating prices that you encounter while you're at the show. So my Q&A for you this week is about that Countryman mic or any other hands-free mics that you think might uh, work well in that environment. I don't want to have a huge headset on or anything like that while I'm walking around. So I like the form factor of the Countryman. It's very uh, inconspicuous, if you will. And again, I don't mind using the stick mic. But I know it bothers a lot of people, but there is a good reason as to why I use it. And to be honest with you, it's amazing how well these mics work at isolating sound. But if I can find a hands-free solution, I am all for it. So let's have a discussion down in the comments below. And this last question comes in from George Senda, who wants to know how to get access to attend CES. He buys a lot of Mac stuff and has been using computers back to the days of mainframes and posts stuff up on his YouTube channel. And I looked into a couple of different ways you can get to CES. The first way, of course, is to buy a ticket. Uh, those cost about $300, at least they did this year. Uh, but that would get you full access to the show floor, the keynote addresses, and everything else. Uh, if you stay at an official uh, CES hotel, which are the more expensive ones, you do get free transportation back and forth on uh, their shuttle buses that run all day long. So there's some benefit, perhaps, to staying at one of those hotels for convenience and perhaps transportation costs. You have to figure out what works best for you. Uh, you do, though, need to have some connection to the consumer electronics industry. So when you go to submit your request to buy a ticket, you have to show that you work in some fashion uh, in the industry. But I think if you were to say, hey, I'm buying a ticket and I have a YouTube channel that covers this industry that I'm uh, doing as a part-time job, I probably think that would work uh, for them, especially if you're willing to pay for a ticket. Now, if you are a member of the media, you can attend CES for free. You still got to pay for your hotel and travel and everything else, but you can go uh, as a member of the press and get a few more perks in the process there. Now, they have a couple of different categories for media. Uh, so one is called the Key Online Influencer, and they have some minimums here that are probably hard to reach. One is having a million or more YouTube subscribers, and my big gripe with how they uh, categorize an online influencer is the assumption that everyone who's successful has a lot of followers. The reality is that you can be successful without a lot of followers. It really should depend on watch time and uh, view counts, in my opinion. But this is what their thresholds are for online channels. So these are the minimums you need on these platforms to be considered a key online influencer. Uh, but there's another track, and this is the track that I go under, uh, which is online media. So in addition to doing videos here on this channel, I write for a local publication here in my state about technology issues from time to time. 
uh, and I credential under that, uh, that organization. So I post some of the videos there. I sometimes do a write-up after the show. I do articles uh, off and on throughout the year for that publication on uh, technology and perhaps its intersection with public policy. Uh, so that is how I've been getting credentialed to get to CES, is writing for that publication. And what's funny is they look at traffic differently for online media versus YouTube uh, in this instance. And as you can see here, they just want to see that you have 10,000 or more unique visitors per month. So you need to uh, print out something from Google Analytics or some other uh, thing that's a, a, a credible uh, means of determining your site traffic. And 10,000 unique viewers per month is enough to uh, meet the threshold for being an online media publication. Now, a third option might be something to consider, which is reaching out to print media in your area. As we know, print media is continuing to struggle, and they're probably always looking for content. So you might want to reach out even to your local newspaper and say, hey, can I write a technology column for you maybe once a quarter or maybe once a month? Uh, if they agree to that, that's a good starting point because now you're published in a print media uh, operation that has an editor and has some uh, editorial controls, and that often is a good way to uh, build up your credentials as a member of the media. And it might be fun to write those articles too. So you can uh, use that. You have to have a recent byline, which means an article that you published. Uh, you might want to uh, ask your uh, local paper to perhaps include you in the masthead that lists you as an editorial contributor so that you have some connection to that publication. Uh, and that would be suitable for your credentialing for CES. So there's a number of ways you can probably get at it. You do have to do some work to uh, produce the media that gets you there, but you can, I think, uh, not easily, but more easily get credentialed by uh, helping some of your local publications with their uh, content. And that might be, again, a fun way to learn a new craft and uh, learn a process of, of writing as a journalist, and then you can take that to uh, get credentialed in other places. Now, there are other events, as I mentioned, that we attend. So I go to PEPCOM, uh, which is an event that is held uh, around CES but is not connected to CES, and they have their own criteria for credentialing journalists to go to that. Uh, so again, my work as a, uh, a, a print writer uh, was what got me credentialed into PEPCOM. I still do some print writing, as I mentioned. Uh, Showstoppers has a very similar uh, threshold. You have to have some media credentials. And they actually evaluate you separately from CES. So just having a CES press credential is not enough to get into these other events. Uh, so again, I think you really should probably focus on doing some print work, and that might help you get credentialed in the future. Now, the cool thing about being a press member at CES is that they have uh, these press lounges set up where you can kind of download your footage and just recharge your own personal batteries. And they also provide a boxed lunch with a number of different choices as well to members of the press. They really do a nice job in helping press cover the events very easily. And I've been to a number of national media events, and I think CES is probably one of the better ones when it comes to accommodating uh, members of the press. So it's a very, um, not an easy event to cover given its scale, but they do uh, try to accommodate journalists and help them do their job uh, in the best way possible. Those lounges have decent Wi-Fi, and again, good stuff if you are uh, looking to get into this live event coverage. So now it's time for a pick of the week, and I was in my entertainment room trying to set up a little office area there for myself just because I don't like to work in the basement all the time and I want to be a little bit closer to my kids when I'm doing some stuff upstairs. So I was working on that and I discovered this CD that I bought way back in 1994. It is Doom 2, uh, which was the CD-ROM release of Doom. And 
uh, you know, I was playing it for a little bit back then, and it kind of sat on many shelves over the years. And I took it out and said, hey, I wonder if I could play this on my modern hardware. And sure enough, you can. Uh, there's a great little package called GZ Doom that is multi-platform. And what it does is it takes your original Doom WAD file and then 3D accelerates it through your GPU so it runs really nicely on modern hardware. You don't have to boot it up into DOS. It even ran natively on my Mac, which was pretty cool. Uh, and then, of course, that led down to another rabbit hole, which was Brutal Doom, uh, which is an awesome Doom mod that modernizes Doom without really changing the game all that much. So you get better sound effects, better weapons. The uh, characters that you're going after have multiple hit points and different things happen to them when you're uh, blowing them away and whatnot. It was kind of fun, and it's something that you can get for free. Uh, Brutal Doom does require one of the original Doom WAD files, but those probably aren't hard to find. I, of course, had a legit copy on that CD, uh, and you can find more information uh, at the link on screen to play around with it. But it's really a fun reinterpretation of the original Doom and something I was not expecting to get uh, so much fun out of after just stumbling across a CD upstairs. So definitely check out Brutal Doom. So this week on the channel, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of things, uh, one being the Nook tablets from Barnes & Noble. Uh, these compare with the Amazon Fire tablets that we've looked at before, both in price and overall capabilities, but these are running with the regular version of Android and not Amazon's Fire uh, tablet version of Android. So there's a little more flexibility perhaps with these, which we'll explore in a full review. Also, we'll be looking at the ThinkPad Extreme, uh, the X1 Extreme, that is, which is a Lenovo ThinkPad with a GPU. I believe this one has an MX150. Very nice computer that's going to set you back a little bit, but if you're looking for premium, uh, this is certainly one of their premium offerings. We like to look at those from time to time. And then I hope to get to this this week. It might be next week, but I do want to look at YubiKeys because I've been hearing about them for many years. We interviewed them at CES, but I've never actually owned one. And these are physical authentication devices for not only your computer, but also the platforms that you visit. Uh, if you check out that interview we did with Stina, who is the CEO of Yubico, she talks about uh, how uh, the phishing attacks are probably the most uh, prominent threat online today, where people get your password through some means and then can get into your account. Uh, these uh, YubiKeys require not only the password, but the physical key uh, to be inserted into your device for anyone to get access to that platform. We'll look at uh, how to set them up and how to use them in that video. So let me know what you want to see uh, down below in the comments on that. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support and make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. We also have our ongoing relationship with Plex, where uh, you can sign up for a free Plex account. No credit card required, and we'll get a small commission for that. We get a little bit more if you gift a Plex Pass to somebody else or buy a Plex Pass for yourself. We cover Plex a lot here on the channel. You can check out more uh, by searching for it. And then we have other channels, including my Extras channel, where we post unboxings and supplementary content, sometimes some mini-reviews as well. We have my podcast, which has audio versions of this show, in addition to some of my radio appearances that I make from time to time and my interviews that I do from time to time. In fact, that Silicon Dust interview is up in audio form on my podcast feed, if you'd prefer to listen to it in the car or something like that. Uh, we also have the Snippets channel where we break out search-friendly uh, portions of other videos. So we break out all of these uh, uh, weekly wrap-up clips there, but we also 
Uh, we'll be putting up the individual segments from my dispatches there too, so you can check that out. And then we have my live stream archive at lon.tv slash live streams. I do suggest you click on the bell if you want to get notified every time I do something new here on the channel. That's one great way to keep up with what I am doing. And if I start to do more live streams, you'll get notified when I do those. And then if you want to engage with the channel, you can go to my email list at lon.tv slash email. Uh, We also have my Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook. And then we have the Facebook group where you can interact with me and other viewers. I think we're getting close to 600 members there at lon.tv slash Facebook group. And then we have the store at lon.tv slash store where I sell things that I've previously reviewed here on the channel. Uh, We will be stocking up the store again shortly once I get caught up. It's been a crazy month so far. I think it's going to be a crazy year, Uh, but there is a bunch of stuff taking up room back there that needs to go. So we're going to be getting that uh, going soon. And if you wanted to get notified when I do update the store so you don't have to check it constantly, uh, you can go to lon.tv slash store alert. And I always send out an email every time something gets changed in that store. So you can get a little bit of a head start on your shopping just by signing up for the alert. And that is going to do it for this first wrap-up of, uh, second wrap-up, I guess, of 2019. I did the other one on New Year's Day, but my first one back from CES where I really feel like the year begins. Uh, So we'll be back again next week and every week after with our regularly scheduled programming, at least for now. And thank you all for watching and keep those questions and comments coming. Until next time, this is Lon Seidman. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Tom Albrecht, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.